Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. I'm happy to welcome you back to Tag Talk Season 2. New season, new format. We've closed the restaurant and set off on a journey into having a cheeky cuppa with the distinguished leaders in the food industry. The apron is off and the kettle is boiling for the new series of Tag Talks. For those of you latecomers to the series, my name is Matt Wilton. Fun facts about myself is I'm a Blue Peter badge recipient and I'm an extra in a film coming out this year on Amazon Prime. In this series, I'll take my guests through their food memories, taking them down nostalgia lane while finding more about their career path. As little Oliver Twist said, please sir, may I have some more? <laughs> more is what you will get. So plug your earphones in, make sure the volume is moderately loud enough and enjoy season two. But before we begin, I want to plug a service from MDS. I'm a firm believer in mental health support and I wanted to raise awareness for the Healthy Hub application provided by MDS. It offers confidential support on issues that may be affecting your work, home life, health, and general well-being, and dependent on the nature of the issue, counselling or information services which are provided by fully qualified professionals. It has a support line that I'm very fond of and I've used myself. My favourite quote is, some of the most comforting words in the universe are me too. That moment when you find out that your struggle is also someone else's struggle, that you're not alone and that others have been down the same road. Anyway, let's jump into this podcast. Our first episode welcomes Christine Tagon to the Tag Talks Cafe. For those of you who don't know Christine, Christine has an incredible career behind her. Christine studied production engineering at Cambridge University, where she also did a bit of rowing for Girton College. She's also received an MBA from Cranfield University in business administration and management, as well as receiving the same university, an honorary doctor of science, agriculture and environment. She's been highly involved with volunteer experience for the BBC as a chair on the Rural Advisory Committee and also highly involved as the founder of Women in Food and Farming. And the list keeps growing. She has given TED Talks on her work as groceries code adjudicator, helping enforce large grocery retailers to adhere to the grocery supply code to strengthen their relationships with suppliers as well as chairing the Red Tractor label body who promote assurance on food quality in the industry. She also for 11 years ran the cooperative group's farming business, the largest in the UK. To top it all off, she was awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2004 for her contribution to agriculture. And ultimately, what I believe the icing on the cake is she is the chair of our very own MDS grad scheme. Welcome, Christine. <laughs> Welcome. Well, I, I hope I have got, I've got some career ahead of me as well. It isn't all just behind. Yeah, no, there definitely is. We'll probably, I've got a few questions about that actually as well. Is there anything else you'd probably add to that? No, I, I think I'm a, I'm a proud mum of two kids in their early 20s. He's been very, very fussy about making sure that I've got time for them. And I think all, almost all my working life, I might have they might have missed out during the week, but they never missed out at weekends. My current boss who I had on the podcast in season one, he said the best thing, you, the best priority is family at the end of the day. So I could, I could believe in that quite a lot. I'll just tell you about a very weird thing. I once had an executive coach. And um, they asked me as one of my exercises to write my obituary. When you wrote it, what you wanted people to be saying at your funeral, nothing of it was about work. It was, it was weird. I tell you what it did do. It made me buy a narrowboat. Because I actually wrote down in my obituary that when, when I retired, we spent many happy years traveling around in the narrowboat and we'd had wonderful holidays, but we didn't do them anymore because it always seemed so expensive because we never, we never booked in advance and it just, and, and we decided, well, let's buy one now rather than wait till we retire. So I've had one now for about 15 years. Quite a nice. I guess that sort of, it's a bit dark, but it's also like, you, it's sort of a nice refreshment into what you actually want out of life a bit more, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit shocked when I was asked to do it, but uh, yes, what we're thinking about, you know, what, what, when you, when you look back what's going to have been important no exactly i mean especially with the career you have especially if that hasn't even made it you must have had an exciting life as well anyway you, you started to ask how my day had been oh yeah i was just going into before we get into the the the, the, the other questions i was just asking you had a good day though so far <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I've had a red tractor meeting agreeing what the annual pay increase should be for the uh, CEO and the directors. And I'm actually busy. We've got we've got a converted barn here at home, and the tenants have left, and we've got somebody coming to view on um, this afternoon. So we, I was up till midnight last night cleaning toilets and showers and stuff like that. Finishing it off before I came back, rushed back to catch catch you. So I like you know it's not it's not all work. <laughs> it sounds it sounds a bit busier than my day. <laughs> Uh, okay so i guess we're going to begin the podcast i think i'm going to start with one of the funner questions and i think it's what is your childhood favorite meal oh you you asked me this in advance and i did have a think about it and i've decided it's leftover mints on toast leftover mints very interesting you know if you've done a spag bob or something like that if there was left if there was any leftover we'd get given it on toast and i think it's a really nice meal with the sort of you've got all of the best bits you've got all the mints and then just a piece of crunchy toast underneath and uh, i i feel quite nostalgic about it i i can buy that because i i mean i love that like you know leftover bolognese sauce with a bit of garlic bread that is absolutely ideal <laughs> and it, it tastes better the second day as well yeah no definitely it's like a, i always find like a curry for example a curry always tastes better the next day when you've had a takeaway <laughs> no yeah no definitely so with that childhood favorite meal i guess we're gonna hop in so i thought it'd be a good place to start would be university for you so you're at university of cambridge and i wanted to know from university did you always know that you're going to sort of follow this career path like the career path you've chosen or did, did you have different aspirations when you were at university i think well i even i only chose engineering so i didn't want to be a physicist a chemist or a mathematician and i thought it was quite and um, i think what i having understood a bit about engineering i decided that i really wanted to get into running factories i wanted to produce things so that was my ambition, just to work in factories and things that made things. You know, when you finish university and people are trying to entice you into banking and you think, well, what does banking actually make? You know, I, I, I have things that come out the other end. And, you know, so uh, and, and I started off working in high precision zinc die casting and then I was in chocolate and then I was in bricks and then I was in butter. Someone said I'm into rectangular shapes. Um, but, yeah, I was, but, you know, it just making things and I think sort of the ultimate one is when you're sort of running a farming business and you're of course producing a vast amount of food. No definitely you can see your results as well I guess. It's um, the reason I asked that really is just because I think there's a lot of people at MDS and the grad scheme at the moment they've just come out of university and like if they're with their, with their careers is I guess not to worry about like if you don't know really what you want to do yet still you know. Oh don't worry at all and uh, you know, one thing I've actually always been really bad at is career planning. I just tend to sort of have my head down in the job and uh, almost all of my job moves have come because the headhunters rung me up and said, what do you think about this? I haven't even been looking. I, I, I don't think I'm not recommending that as the way forward. But I, I, I didn't tend to think generally, you know, what job do I want? It was like I want to be making things and I want to be happy. And I've always enjoyed all my work. What was your first job out of uni university then? Did you did you go straight into a job? That was in high precision zinc diecast. I think it was the year, uh, having done engineering, I think loads of people wanted to recruit their token first woman engineer into production. And uh, I got to Mars and Unilever and P&G and I got jobs from everybody. And in the end, I got one from Coates Viella. And uh, they said, uh, what will make us join you join us? And I said, I want to work overseas. And they said, which country? I said, Germany. And they said, done, which is why I went to work for Coates Viella. And I ended up in the middle of the forest in doing high precision zinc die casting i actually joined them because they did jaeger and jaeger clothes and i thought well i understand clothes i didn't i didn't even know what die casting was but we largely made parts for cars like spot hat and 
things that hold all the old old fashioned speedometers, you know, when the, when the, when the things used to tick round. They've been sold a number of times since then, and now they largely make the parts that go inside um, laptops. Hyper, you know, very very intricate pieces of zinc. No, definitely. Did you did you say you also worked in a bit of a chocolate factory or something? Did you say I did? Well, yes. Yeah, so when I when I first I then went back and joined Mars three years later. Um, and they'd, so they'd offered me a job from university, and I haven't taken it. And uh, my job was a production planning on new products. So I involved in launching Tracker, which you will have known, and M&Ms. Um, and uh, there was a bit of a, a product that went nowhere called Applause. Um, but anyway, involved in launching new products. And in Tracker, we were actually building a production line as well. So that, that was fa- fabulous. And I used whites every day, you know, white, white, white tops and white bottoms. And they all had, you had to change them every day. You had to go to be laundered. Um, and uh, they had poppers down the front. And working at Mars, if you like chocolate, is not a great idea if you're going to have pop up your clothes and you sort of they start if you ate too much chocolate your your your, your clothes done. I'm assuming there were just freebies everywhere for you to have. <laughs> everywhere. It was your duty to eat them because they'd come straight off the production. And if you found anything wrong, there was a number to ring. So they had them everywhere. And you know, sometimes particularly when you're planning and you're, you 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 you've got all of this stuff going on in your head, and you'd find that you'd just gone to get a coffee and you've come back and you went past and picked up a pack of Maltesers, and then and you sat there and then you thought, where did those Maltesers go? Even remember having eaten them um, but yes I, I did i did once complain because the bounty didn't taste right and it turned the coconut had come on a pallet and the and the coconut had picked up a taint from the um the, the preservative on the pallet and it's as all the bounty got held are you a bounty fan because i have to say i have to say when i get a celebrations box i'm the one person who does eat the bounty <laughs> oh I, I i like all of them mars had such a huge range of products that you'd start off eating thinking oh i like bounty and you'd to, to Milky Way and then to Maltesers and then you'd have a cold and you'd have your tunes and lockets and then you think oh, it's a long while since I had a bounty and you were back at the beginning again you must have honestly just given up on chocolate for at least a year after that job though. <laughs> I actually became addicted to it I'd go home in the evening you like having any supper and you got free back you got free sweets every week as well to take home it's one of those either or because my my dad used to work at Cadbury's he's an accountant for Cadbury's back in the day and he said when he used to go he used to go to his work every morning and there'd be just a bowl of chocolate on his desk and it first few weeks he'd, he'd take it back for them give it to my mom or something like that apparently after like a month or something or two months he just was so sick of it being refilled it just all the time oh, well I, I think maybe that's a man for you I think I'm afraid of you know, it didn't put me off at all well I guess we've got through the university so I guess let's just move on back to some um, I think I might do a couple of fun questions here but what we've got your childhood favourite food what's your current favourite food like your ideal meal at the moment no well at at home I'm really into a cookery book that is um, it's got one one tin it's quick quick meals that you that cook inside 30 minutes and you only use one tin and I've actually worked my way through the whole of the cookery book during lockdown so order order it things and there's a lady who did it who wrote it is um she's asian so she's introduced me to all sorts of food i wouldn't normally try i think actually if you said to me it's a special occasion what do you want i would actually go to my local thai and have a takeaway and have it here so it's, it's, not, it's not it's not a great location but the lady there who, who, who runs it is thai and her food is just wonderful where would you go for thai food then and that what which thai foods yeah I'm, I'm very i'm very boring i ring them up and i say and they, they recognize my voice i say can i have a yellow vegetable one then i'll have a green duck one and a red beef one and they just put it all together for me <laughs> 
Well, that's the way to do it. That is the way to do it. <laughs> so we've all we've all we've all had a few too many drinks before. So what would you say your hangover cure food is? Yeah, definitely a cooked breakfast, and uh, we get we get our bacon from our local butcher, and it's just outstanding. And we have our own hens, so the eggs are gorgeous. And I put mushrooms with it, but I absolutely no baked beans or black pudding but just a just a simple cooked breakfast no baked beans okay i can agree on the black pudding i think baked beans are essential there although i wouldn't have a i wouldn't have a tomato in mine everyone has their own version of what they like in a full english <laughs> yes but, but but really good bacon and really good eggs is the is, is the main thing oh no definitely i mean because that's that's one thing i'm missing being here in switzerland is they don't do proper bacon like it's not back bacon it's just like it's american style streaky bacon which i never agree with it's too crispy and too uh... i have i have a friend who um, lives in geneva and has done his whole career we were at university together and when he when he comes back to the uk he just buys vacuum packs of bacon from our local butchers and takes them all back to switzerland so i i sympathize i'm living with a couple of people on my course in uh, april they're moving over here to uh, syngenta so I'm, i might see if they can vacuum pack me some bacon and bring it over <laughs> definitely Definitely, yeah. So actually, one thing that I found really interesting about your career is your role in, it said volunteer experience, but about women in food and farming. I was wondering, like, how you came up with this great idea. Like, where did this come from? It's not a great idea. It's something I've actually run away from. When I was at the co-op, they used to say, oh, we're doing a women in leadership thing. Will you come along? And I said, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with um, treating women separately from men. I don't want to be seen as a woman. I want to be seen as a working person. Completely fair. <laughs> I actually was really fighting against it. Um, and then um, what, what actually happened is that the chief exec of Natural England, chief exec of the Soil Association and the chief exec of, um, I think it might have been the Game Conservancy and Wildlife Trust, met on the farm for a meeting and looked at each other and said, crikey, we're all women. And they were saying, we, we, we us women ought to do more to support each other because there are so few of us, particularly at, you know, at senior levels in, in, in the industry. And so they rang me, who was running the co-op farms at the time, which was the biggest farming business in the country, and Jane King, who was editor of Farmers Weekly, and said, we've decided we need to do something for women. So I said, OK, let's meet for lunch, but let's each bring two people who none of the rest of us know, because we all knew each other. And of course, if you're trying to bring people the others don't know, you go young. So we all brought people that were under 30. And and then we said, this is absolutely brilliant. Let's do it again. But lunch is far too short. So we made it into an evening. And then we said, everybody who's here has got to invite somebody else. And then every time we came, we said, you have to bring someone else. And that way, we very quickly got to about 500 members. And we met three times a year in London. And um, and it was just the noisiest thing. And I, 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 I'm sort of the one that's doing all, all the organising. And for ages, I was the one that was getting everybody's £20 and pay for the food and the drink and trying to find places, venues that would give us the place for nothing. And actually, because people were so supportive of what we were trying to do. And really, I was trying to set up. I wanted the young people to speak to the older people and to realise that we're human and we're normal and we're nothing special. And if they wanted career advice, they could speak to us or if they... If a mentor that I could hopefully try and introduce them to somebody that would, would be a good mentor for them. And then um, since November, we've been doing it virtually and we've done, um, we're just doing it every first Tuesday of the month. And it's amazing. We're getting people from overseas on the call now. We had somebody from um, South America and somebody from Italy on the last one. So it's, it's quite exciting. It was, it was, I didn't see it as a great idea. I just think I, I think what I was more concerned about was helping people who were at the beginning of their careers to recognise that 
you know, when they go to the meetings and they are the only woman in the room, there are masses of masses and masses of other women who are the only woman in the room and not to worry about it and that we're there if they need to reach out and speak to somebody massive. Oh, you've also sort of answered my next question to do that because I was going to ask what sort of role you played, but it seems like you sort of had this role of networking to try and encourage the younger generation and the older generation to actually start connecting and actually start like giving advice to each other because people can learn from each other and that's probably the biggest quality in that. Yeah, and, and my, my, uh, my goal, which has happened on three occasions, is that I've found somebody that will sponsor that every, everybody under 30 comes for nothing so they don't have to pay to anything towards their, their food their food and, their, their, and drink. Um, and uh, the... the the other thing that I've uh, that I've, I've done that we used to have a sit down dinner, and that was much more expensive. And uh, so I try to keep it to sort of more bowl food. So it's not things, it's not sandwiches. You can have bowls of food, but try and keep the price down so that it's affordable to everybody. And it was also really interesting as the person that was bringing in the money, how the younger people were generally paying it themselves, and some of the older people were, you know, and much more senior people were asking for an invoice, please, so they could claim it on expenses. And, that, and that's what's made me really determined to keep the cost down. So I don't want any, I mean, you know, people still got to get there. Haven't they? I mean, not the virtual ones, but the London ones. You've got to get there and they might have to stay overnight with a friend and then you've got to buy the friend a bottle of wine or something. You know, there are, there's a cost to these things. I think there's a thing about, like, I don't know, but I've always found as a, a younger person, I always feel like um, you feel a bit rude asking for, like, an invoice or something like that, even though you probably could get... I know MDS sometimes budgets back stuff for travel, but I feel there's always that sort of politeness of you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to sort of do that if it's out of your way sort of thing. I think my advice would always be don't push it. You don't want to get a reputation for somebody that's claimed for a 50p bus fare. But, uh, you know, if, if there's a if there's an expense that you've incurred, you know, always, always claim it, but not if it's silly. You know, just think, would I, would I be embarrassed if somebody asked me why I've done this? Yeah, that's really good advice. I guess, like, this sort of leads me on to my last bit to do with women in food and farming. But would you say, saw your biggest challenge was to do this? Getting somebody else to do the admin for me. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I've gone to a headhunter does it, which is, you know, it's great that they do it without charging for it. And, you know, the, and they do all of the, I mean, unfortunately, it means that they then had to put that on it. Uh, but but they, they do all of that for me. It, it loses a bit of control. And sometimes somebody's got a really exciting job and they, they wanted to get some female applicants. And then it's a bit awkward when it's being run by a headhunter. But I have sent job adverts around. And, you know, things like training courses. There's a farmers club have a charitable trust um, and uh, they generally put people on a winter leadership course. And they've contacted me before and they say, we have got no female applicants. Can you find us some applicants? And as I've just put people forward and actually both of them got then got through the interview and have been on the course. And other times I just send the details around everybody in the in the network and say, come on, you know, this is a great course. I guess like I'm going to move back, moving back and forth, it's a bit of a playful sort of just thing. But um, what is your drink of choice? What is like, you're relaxing in an evening, what would you what would you have to relax? <laughs> well, I listen to Greta. I'm just an absolutely typical woman. It's gin and tonic, but I have a vast range of gin, and I tend to use cheap tonic, which horrifies my daughter. And so she just recently sent me twelve bottles of nice tonic. But generally, I will go for little Aldi and label tonic because I think well, the point of having a really interesting gin and then putting a tonic in it that's going to change the flavour. But no. It's 
gin and tonic and probably you know i've i've been a one a night for lockdown the whole way through i do love uh i don't know if you've had them you know these uh the little and aldi ones especially i think they're called like horvis or something they're uh the flavored gins they have yeah well i, I want the neutral gins i say i get the aldi one because so i can take oh it's so the neutral tonics i mean so that you can taste the gin you talking about gin or tonic we're just then gin the gin the gin yeah because i like I love the like they're these rhubarb ones that I love. Yeah, they, I've, I've had the Al, the Aldi rhubarb and ginger one, and they also have got a weird one, sort of a purple one with which has sort of got some sort of fluorescence in it. Had that one. It, to be honest, it looks better than it tastes. Yeah, I could agree with the tonic though, but I've never. Really, I think the only one with gin that I don't like is like an orange sort of gin. You know, <gasps> you don't mean the Tanqueray Seville orange one. <laughs> I do mean the Tanqueray Seville <laughs> for ages. I think I've gone off because I had so much of it. But that that really was wonderful. That was one of the very first really interesting gins, the Seville orange one. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna hate me on this podcast. I think every episode, this is sixth one I've done so far. <laughs> I've mentioned gin and tonic and my love of rhubarb gin and tonic. <laughs> oh well, I make my own rhubarb gin and I make my own slow gin. If you come to meet the trainees, do you think you could bring me a <laughs> bring me a sample? <laughs> I will. Uh, my slow gin's a lot better than my rhubarb gin, so you might get a slow gin, but we the slows are all in the garden. So also a brewer, or is it, or is it a distiller? Distiller, sorry. Well, I don't make the gin from scratch. I buy the cheapest gin you can get, and then by the time you put all the slows and the sugar in, it doesn't really matter what the gin was. But you do it, you make it in around September, and you shouldn't drink it till Christmas. The longer you keep it, the better it gets. Does it get more strong within that time as well, or is it just flavour? Yes, Yes, I think the flavour just keeps coming out. But even once you've taken the slows out and bottled it, it just seems to age beautifully. I guess next thing is the thing that I found all over YouTube is your role as the groceries code adjudicator. I don't know if you want to, you'll probably better explain this to me, but could you give me like sort of like a brief overview and for the others, like sort of what this role was? Yeah, so it was, um, it followed competition commission inquiries into whether retailers were abusing their their enormous power um, in the way they treated their suppliers. Um, they came up with a legally binding code. And then um, everybody was saying we have to have an adjudicator, someone that could oversee it because suppliers were worried about raising the issues with the retailers. And they passed an act of parliament that created the role of groceries code adjudicator. And I applied for that job and got it. But before it had finished going through parliament, so I actually went to the House of Lords listening to the, re- the, the debate as they were as they were. And they referred to as a she because I had actually already been appointed, which was quite nice. Um, and, uh, and my and I, my role was to invest. I had to investigate any breaches of the code um, and uh, and to arbitrate in any disputes. And I also eventually, not at the beginning, but got the power to fine up to one percent of turnover, which for Tesco was half a billion pounds. And uh, the retailers that came under it were the top ten biggest grocery retailers with turnover over a billion. And the uh, the code of practice, the things that they weren't allowed to do was things like delaying payments, varying agreement without notice, delisting people without notice, making profit centers out of consumer complaints, making profit centers out of telling you who, which packaging supplier to, to use and to getting a backhander for having told you you've got to use them. So there were lots of things. And, and it was it was generally a lot of the practices. I'd have been, I think many people would have been quite embarrassed to have aired in the public domain as to the sorts of things they were on, uh, you know, just deliberately, you know, when I, I did investigate Tesco, 
And I found that they were deliberately withholding money from suppliers. They were deliberately invoicing them twice for the same thing and deducting money just before their year end to make their, their figures look good. And then sometimes, you know, if, they, if the price was wrong, it, uh, in one case, it took them a year to acknowledge that the price in their system was wrong and they'd been underpaying for the supplier against what they'd agreed. And then it took another year for the supplier to get their money back. And those were the sorts of things I was finding in the investigation. And just by working with the co-compliance officers, telling them the things that Tesco had done wrong and what I made Tesco do, because the recommendations I did were binding on them, then saying to everybody, I want you to adhere to these sorts of principles that you never deduct money from an invoice without giving the supplier 30 days in which to challenge it. And if they challenge it, you can't deduct it. So the money stays with the supplier until you can prove that they owe you money. And all, all sorts of, I mean, like pricing error, pricing disputes, I said, had to be resolved within seven days rather than plus a year to pay. So um, it, it, and by working closely with the retailers, I got them to change the way they did things. And because I didn't want to be measured by how many investigations I did or how much I raised in fines, I did an annual survey and then I published a league table of how compliant suppliers said their retailers were to the code. And Aldi came to a year for seven years. Tesco worked really hard and where they were the most improved retailers for about five years running after the investigation. And then I also investigated the co-op who went from 10th before um, the investigation to second two years later in terms of compliance. So, so you know, it, they really did change the way that they behaved with their suppliers. And a lot of YouTube videos were me trying to get message out to suppliers to say, I can't help you unless you tell me what the problems are. Go and get yourself trained, understand the code and tell me what the issues are and uh, I can do something about it. You, you did a TED talk on this actually, which I, I found really interesting. And I think one of the interesting, po- I, I've written it down here, but one of the interesting things that I think you mentioned is in the style that you handled it, because you said you didn't really feel like you wanted to punish the retailers. You wanted to like, you had a different approach. I was just wondering if you could briefly just explain to me why th- this sort of approach that you took, because you didn't want to punish them because they did say, I think you did say that if they didn't comply with the rules, they would get fined 1% of their prof- gross profit, was it? 1% of turnover. turnover. But what I did say to them, but I have to investigate in order to be able to fine. And the investigations are very formal. They're statutory. And, and, and it's a huge burden with paperwork and everything on all sides. And both investigations, the Tesco and Co-op, both cost over £1.3 million to those retailers. What I said was, I will, I will listen to suppliers. And when I hear that you're doing things wrong, I will tell you about it. And I will give you a chance to put it right. But only if you aren't right will I even think about investigating. So I was always raising issues with them all the time to try and get them to improve. But I only I just went about that role the same way as I would do things in business, which is that you explain problems to people, you brainstorm with them. The people I was working with, the code compliance officers, were not allowed to be in the buying chain of command. So they were generally in legal or in audit or in finance. They weren't the people that were doing anything wrong. So I sort of treated them as my allies and that you are 
my people working within your business. So if I can explain to you what the problem is, then you will go and sort it out. And I will trust you to try and sort it out. But if you're not getting anywhere, then things start getting nasty. So this it seems to be, it worked very successfully because you said stuff like Aldi. Aldi was actually consistently one of the top ones as well within that. And you've seen, you said Tesco's were the, one of the first ones you worked with and they've improved significantly. But um, I guess my my last question is to do with the, the, the adjudicator role. It's just sort of like, what do you sort of see as the future of the code? Do you think there's still a lot of steps to be taken for these companies? No, I don't. I mean, there's obviously a new adjudicator now because I I stepped down after my second term after I've done about seven and a half years. Um, and he may he may take a different approach. He's much more of a lawyer, so he may well do the job very differently. Uh, I think the future is that um, other other retailers will come in. So when I first started, there were 10 retailers. By the time I finished, there were 13. It's highly likely that Amazon will get designated at some point because their groceries turnover will go over a billion. So the future is that other businesses will, will be brought in. Um, and then, of course, there's been huge demand from the farming sector that they wanted something similar and that they're getting something different set up because they won't have the same issues. There's no point in them having the same code and the same adjudicator. And that's been allowed for in the Agriculture Act. <laughs> so there may be something similar coming in. But the future is that um, people all over the world um, have got the same issues with retailers and suppliers. And because we were the first to legislate and the first to do something about it, they're quite interested in knowing what we did. And I'm currently um, being consulting to Canada as they try to implement theirs. Well, perfect. So international is probably one of the next sort of aspects. Maybe not for us. We're, we're focusing on ourselves at the moment, but hopefully the world starts following in sort of the footsteps, I guess. Um, so this sort of brings me back to fun questions again. But what food do you absolutely refuse to eat? <laughs> I'm actually not at all fussy about food, but we once went to St. Petersburg and chose, we, it was a traditional Russian restaurant, and we chose stuff we had no idea what it was. And it actually was a, a just a slice of fat. I'm not, it was absolutely, it was chewy fat. It was I've never had anything so revolting. I mean, a fat, that, and it wasn't even like it was cooked. You know, it's not like on a pork chop. It was chewy fat. Actually, it might even have been tripe. I don't know what it was. It was absolutely disgusting. But I don't know what it was. So I just won't, <laughs> I won't I'll make sure when I order food in a foreign country, I'll have a vague idea of what it is I'm trying. Luckily, hopefully you don't have a high chance of running into that again, at least now. <laughs> Oh, so this probably so this leads me into I've got a couple more things that I wanted to talk about career wise but I guess this brings me actually you've mentioned it before the red tractor label so for those who don't know the red tractor label uh, it's sort of like a, an assurance thing isn't it Christine so it makes sure that the quality of the food with, if it has this label on it is satisfactory and it's good standard yeah it came it was brought in in 2020 after no sorry i mean sorry the year 2000 after bse foot and mouth salmonella and the trust in british farming was at a real low and there were there were people who did assurance but it wasn't coordinated and it was a government and industry initiative to say let's have one body that audits these things we're auditing um, food safety, animal welfare, and the environment. And so we're generally auditing what the law is, making sure that they're abiding by the law. And then there are certain things, because it's also owned by the retailers and the end users, there will be things that they want they want to have uh, either not done or done, you know, depends what the practice is. 
And so instead of um, all of the retailers wanting to visit every farm to make sure that they're not doing this and they are doing that, Red Tractor does that for them. So the standards are set sort of between what's required by law and what's required by consumers. And, and once those standards are agreed, and we're in the process of agreeing a new set of standards at the moment, um, we then audit against them. And every farm is audited every year, unless it's livestock and it's every 18 months to make sure we get two seasons. To, you know, so they're treated in the summer and seeing how they're treated in the winter. And if you get this, so if you actually, I don't know if a lot of people recognize this, but if you look on the packagings of your food and you see this little red label, then that's what it, that, the red tractor, that's what it symbolizes. Red tractor with a union jack. And I think part of the reason when I, I mean, I only started the job in January is that I felt that it was absolutely the right time when people were talking about cheap food imports and coming into different standards than were required on British farms. It was a very good time to be trying to promote a, a an assurance to say this 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 comes from a British farm and it's been checked and the way it's way it's produced is 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 uh, is to the standard that uh, you know that well you can check your own standards but you don't need to it just sort of it's a bit like having a stamp of approval it's like having the Soil Association or an RSPCA Freedom Foods but Red Tractor is by far the the largest and the best known and people do tend to say they, they trust food that's got it on that's got it on I mean you've explained it all but the question I sort of had is I watched a video on this actually because I was doing a bit more research I've done a lot of video watching if you didn't gather I'm very, I'm very impressed well done but uh, so I found it interesting that part of the policy of Red Tractor is that they wanted to reduce the risks to the environment and I was wondering like how does Red Tractor like support these how do they, how do they sort out these measures and how do they ensure that that the farmers are uh, keeping up the environmental standards on this? A lot of what we're doing is just checking um, that they're abiding by by the law in terms of um, things like slurry storage and, you know, where they spread spread use of fertiliser, use of pesticides and that sort of thing. But we are actually checking, which I think is very different from saying here's a law and nobody's ever checking against it. We're, we're checking. So it is mostly legal standards and then some of them will be other ones that some of the retailers ask for. Some of the time, some of the audits do have what we call a bolt-on where a particular retailer has asked for something else. But generally, those aren't in the area of environment. They tend to be a bit more in um, um, animal welfare. A big discussion this time as to whether we should make it a, a red tractor um, recommendation that um, a farm did a carbon audit, you know, a foot, to try to determine their carbon footprint. But I think the general view is that the technology to do it is at such early stages that it's not really useful enough and maybe now is not quite the right time. Trying to keep up with what with what consumers want as well. No, of course, I think because carbon's becoming a very big, I mean, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and all that is becoming a lot more part of policies these days. So I guess... On that, on that note, I want to quickly move on to, because I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, what would you say the weirdest, most bizarre piece of food is that you've eaten? <laughs> oh, weirdest? Oh, I tell you what it was. I once went trekking in Morocco. With, we were on holiday in Morocco. We went on a three-day camel trek with the nomads. And the camel the most uncomfortable animal ever to ride. We spent a much more of the time walking, leading the camels than actually sitting on them. And then we were out in the near some sort of Bedouin camp and the guys went to speak to the people. They obviously knew them in the Bedouin camp and came back with supper. And it was oh, it was like rancid camel milk. It was warm. I mean, it was, it was hot. It was 
absolutely revolting. Anyway, that's obviously what what was a delicacy, not a delicacy, it was just sort of peasant food for them. And uh, we joined in and ate it. And meanwhile, the camels had had one of their legs tied up, you know, tied up on itself, hobbled. You know, so they, they literally picked its foot up and tied it so they couldn't put their third foot down, which meant that they didn't go very far in the middle of the night. And then when you could find them in the morning and move on. At Rancid, Rancid camel milk with couscous was, oh, you, you know, you had to eat it out of politeness. <laughs> so you don't think that would make the red tractor label? <laughs> <laughs> well, it probably would. It's probably, they're probably doing everything right. I'm not sure about the animal welfare of hobbling. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so this, I'm into my last two actual bits. Actually, I'll probably combine them together. But I just wanted to firstly say congratulations on your CBE. I think that's an amazing achievement. But uh, I just want to see how did you feel to receive this? Well, I will tell you. I was sitting on um, a government commission. It was looking at the they'd got a policy for the future of food and farming, and our role was to implement it. And I sat on that group for about three and a half years. And I used to sort of go around the room and look at these people and think, well, that person's a sir and that person's got an OBE and that person's got an MBE and sort of think, I'm the only person that hasn't got anything on this committee, you know. And um, anyway, I got this really smart looking envelope from, I think it must have been from Buckingham Palace, Buckingham Palace or Downing Street, you know, really thick card. And I opened it up and it said that they would uh, they would like to give me a, a CBE and uh, I had to say whether I would accept it or not. So this was the very first stage. And I was thinking, oh, I really wanted to have an OBE. Um, you know, that, that's really sad. But I don't know what this CBE is. So I, I went on the internet and had a look and realised that it was one up from an OBE. I actually had something better than lots of people I've been sitting around this table with. So it was a surprise. But I didn't even know what it was when I opened the envelope. And I was sad that I hadn't got an OBE because that's what most about isn't it? It's OBEs and MBEs. I didn't know what, it, what a CBE actually was. It's an absolutely incredible achievement, though. So congratulations. I'm just going to bring it right round to the pinnacle of your career, which I'd say MDS chair. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a bit, so when I got that job, you know, a lot of the work jobs I had had were much more of a basket case when I took them on than I was led to believe they were. And MDS was just a lovely business and everything was going well. And the only thing I felt I could do was just to help them to grow. And we've doubled price since I started, but uh, it's such a rewarding thing to do. Really is a fun business. Because my question relates to this is actually, how do you think you could use your experience in the industry to impact the MDS graduates? Well, I think the, what I feel I've brought is, well, I brought to the team the confidence to expand. Um, I know that I've managed to introduce a lot of new members, and I think that the more members I bring in and the more diverse members I bring in, that's going to benefit all of you, all the trainees. I'm very determined to get more retailers in because I think that um, anybody in our industry, in the food industry, having spent six months in a retailer, I think will be a good experience for the rest of your life. And so Aldi have got much more committed in that time. As you know, we've now got Sainsbury's Morrison's in Iceland and we've got two other retailers that are talking to us. So I think that's very exciting. So that's really something that you will all benefit from. Um, I think I, I do try and uh, I, feel, I do feel a bit guilty about it, but I do uh, make sure that the, the, the female trainees know about women in food and farming so they can get involved in that because they may well find themselves. I mean, you go to these food events and they are 80 percent men. And it's just 
and get the men, women to think, come on, you know, we need to get this much nearer to 50-50. Um, so to encourage them to do that. So I hope, hope I bring that as well. Um, when we have our proper meetings, then I'm, uh, you know, I will be there at, you know, certainly all the meet the trainees, um, be great to meet, to meet all of you and have chats with you. And at the moment, as you know, I'm, I'm, you know, because we're not meeting up, I'm having sessions with every single trainee. So hopefully they feel that they can, once they've spoken to me, that they speak to me at any time about anything if they if they need to and hopefully when they listen to this they'll be able to learn a bit more about you actually so it might it might it might reduce the gap as well so yeah well they're they're very they're very welcome perfect if i I, I can help people i will well i I look forward to hopefully interacting with you a bit more at the meet the trainees when the covid sort of ends (laughs) but my last short fun one is what is your vegetable of the year (laughs) machines Aubergines. Aubergines. I've had aubergines. I've had so many aubergines since I started going through that cookbook I was telling you about. Um, they, they just are fabulous vegetables. They can be used for everything, really. I, I love them. <laughs> Probably one of my favourite as well. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people aren't really keen on aubergines. <laughs> oh, they're wonderful. Yeah, and, and they they absorb the flavour of whatever you're cooking. Um, yeah, they're excellent. So I guess we've we've sort of gone through your career now. I just kind of like. It's, it's a, two questions around this sort of thing now I guess one of them is what what is your future ambitions now you know like you've got I, I've gone through what you've done but what, what do you want to achieve in the next 10 years five years I don't know but the future and the second one around that I don't know if you want to answer it sort of similarly is if you could have done one thing differently in your career what would you have done differently well I, th- I think now I'm at the point where I really enjoy being the chair of businesses and be able to sort of be involved in lots of different businesses, but not full time. So, you know, like Red Tractor's taking up more than a day a week at the moment, and yes, is a day a week. And I've got another another board position um, with the AF Group purchasing business that's about you know a couple of days a month. And I, I suppose I would look to keep doing more of those things, but I like them all to be in the food sector because that was all interlinked and I found that very useful. Like when I used to go and see people about the GCA, I would then talk about NDS and vice versa. You know, so, so it, it really helped interlocking businesses and I think I'm just open to ideas of people I I do think there's a big push to try and get more women on boards and I do hope that that will eventually wake up in the agricultural and food sector and I think that I might be an ideal person to have on their board so I'm hoping I'll do more of those things but I am in charge of my own time now and it is much you know I do have a lot more time you know we've just been just received 500 trees um, and with a Woodland Trust grant that we're busy trying to plant every minute that we're not not I'm not working and I've been enjoying doing you know having time to do those sorts of things um this is something I actually say to everybody I speak to is is get yourself a mentor and I actually had somebody who was being a bit of a mentor to me but I didn't really know what a mentor was and I didn't know how important they were and uh, she helped me make a career choice and then I never kept on I never kept up that contact but I do think it helps to have one person that you're sort of bouncing things off even if you're only speaking to them once a year um, that can actually look at your career from the outside and uh, and say to you you know you've spent you spent too long in that business without moving forward is this really what you want to do or have you just got comfortable and just 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 somebody that's prodding you as you go along and I I really have benefited from it and I did have somebody that was was doing it but I didn't really I didn't know what a mentor was I didn't realize the value of it and I should have kept up kept it up I'm really glad you said that because I think that's a really good a bit of sound of advice to uh, actually finish on. And I think like it almost links back to when we talked about women in industry and you said about like encouraging people to network with with anybody in the industry because that's ultimately going to be the thing that 
is how you might find a mentor, you know, and how you can progress yourself. And also, I mean, I remember one of my, when I was a marketing director and my chief exec, when I was at Anchor, said to me, the trouble with you, Christine, is that you're not a networker. And uh, and I just thought, oh, well, if that's important, I will become a networker. And now I'm to people, they're saying, what? You mean you, not a networker? I said, yes, but I, it's not natural to me, but I will go to events and I'll go on my own because that will make me go and talk to people. And just to recognize that you have to do this. It's part of work. It's part of your job. You don't have to enjoy it, but it is part of, of, of doing things. And, and I meet so many people who are just so interesting and fascinating that it, it actually is enjoyable. But I don't like walking into a room where I don't know anybody or think you don't know anybody. I just want to say thank you for taking all your time for this podcast. I think we're at the end of it now, but I hope we can meet again soon at the Meet the Trainees. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for doing this. I think it's an absolutely great initiative. I think Tag's wonderful and, uh, you know, full marks to getting this going. And if I can help you get any more people on, then uh, just let me know. Yeah, if you have any recommendations, please shout out that to me and I'm sure we can get in touch for that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time then, Christine. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.